This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons. Their faithful support allows us to continue the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are a small team composed of two families. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories, so we rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value the work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way to support Bodies Behind the Bus is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but has a tremendous impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Before we begin, we want to make the listener aware that this story contains adult content related to suicidal ideation. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. You can place a free and confidential call to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. We've linked the number in our bio. You are worthy of fighting for, and you are loved. According to the mission statement of the organization Youth with a Mission, also known as YWAM, it is an international movement of Christians from many denominations dedicated to presenting Jesus personally to this and future generations, to mobilizing as many as possible to help in this task, and to the training and equipping of believers for their part in fulfilling the Great Commission. Their website states that YWAM currently has tens of thousands of staff members that work in thousands of teams and locations. Over the next two episodes, our storyteller Kat will bravely share the story of what her team experienced under the direction of an abusive and controlling leader. She has gotten express permission to share these stories and has the support of her team to shine light on their journey during their time together at YWAM. We cannot overstate the integrity, truth, and character we have witnessed during the process of getting to know Kat. Her bravery is admirable, and her steadfastness to speak up, even when it seemed hopeless, is a testament to her character. With that, it is our honor to share with you Kat's story. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we have a new storyteller with us. Uh, her name is Kat, and we are going to be sharing her story and talking through it. Her story revolves around her time at YWAM. For those of you who are going, what in the world is YWAM? We're going to let Kat tell us. So Kat, welcome to Bodies Behind the Bus. So thank, uh, thank you for your bravery and courage to share your story. Can you start us off by saying, discussing a little bit about what YWAM is? Yeah, thanks for having me. 
quite the task. YWAM is huge. Um, but the most, the most simple way to describe YWAM, it's a missions organization with bases all around the world. And their primary goal is, as they say, to mobilize young people into missions. So training, serving, they often, they usually have a base with set staff and then they uh, primarily focus on rotating schools of young people in and out of their bases. So I love the base analogy, like we're going to war, war. Yeah, but no, but that's the term. That's what they're like hubs, I suppose. Yeah. They're, they're ba- yeah, bases. Yeah. I just love that. It, it, it makes sense to me now doing this for a while. So I've actually never thought of it that way. So <laughs> yes, yeah, like invading the countries with our soldiers for Jesus. Very, yeah, very evangelical. <laughs> That's the mindset. So, okay. So you, when did you join YWAM? How old were you? I was 18, um, which for YWAM is pretty stereotypical. It was the fall I was supposed to be going to college. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Obviously I knew what I should have been doing, which was going to college for a degree at my young choosing. But um, at the time in 2011, maybe it's different now, but YWAM just felt like a very hot topic, at least among my youth group. I knew a lot of people who were doing it and it just seemed like a really exciting prospect instead of college, especially for people who don't super want to jump right back into more school. Their marketing is is kind of geared towards this this group of young kids and it's very adventure focused. So, you know, getting to know God, travel is a huge draw. Yeah, it sounds like an adventure. That's what that's what I was gonna say. You said adventure. That's what it sounded like to me when I was reading your um stories. It did sound like they were pitching you like an adventure. Adventure for Jesus kind of thing. Oh, 100 percent. Actually it's a running joke inside the organization, at least with our base, but their most prominent promo video features a young girl sailing down the Amazon River. <laughs> and in the voiceover she's like, hey, there I was, 18, sailing down the Amazon River. And it's just that there it is. Like that's mar- that's YWAM's marketing <laughs> scheme. <laughs> Holding so. my Bible in my right hand. No, and totally. In, and in my left hand. Yeah. Okay. So how was your group formed? How close was everybody? How did you guys kind of interact? Can you explain a little bit about like what that looked like and how you got even placed in a group? Yeah, you know, this is such a weird, YWAM is just forever, I think, going to be a weird thing to kind of discuss to people who weren't a part of it. It's just like, it's a, you know, it's a big spider with so many legs. And I went to one of their biggest bases, which is in Texas, which is so funny that I went there because there were so many more exotic places I could have gone. Their biggest base is, it actually is in Kona, Hawaii, but I went to, you know, Tyler, Texas, and uh, there's a person there, I guess we'll call him Leader B, who was involved with YWAM pretty significantly and for many years, um, and his heart was inner city missions specifically, which was pretty novel considering that YWAM, again, the big draw was, do you want to spend two months in a hut in Africa, right? Like, this was pretty like the antithesis of YWAM's big draw, but his big heart was um, for mobilizing young people to live missionally in inner cities. And he wanted to do a specific, we call them DTSs, Discipleship Training School, which is, you know, YWAM's bread and butter. He wanted to be, I guess, rooted in Texas, but so be connected to Texas, like it's the parent, you know, the parent base, but he wanted to run this school in Chicago. That would be a discipleship training school specifically focused on missions for inner city living. 
and they needed staff. And so well before I came, well before I did my schools, they got together a group of people. They got um, leader R who we'll talk about and his wife, we'll call her Kate, um, to be the leaders of this group. And by the time that I came on, it was, I think, two years into its school. I didn't do my schools. We call it, its name was the Urban DTS. I didn't do those, but I felt very drawn to the kids who were in this school and were coming back on staff. They seemed very countercultural for what I knew Christianity to be expressed as, you know? So like, this is such a juvenile description, but this is, you know, your 18 year old thinking all the kids in my youth group back home are wearing toms and, you know, scarves and these, you know, like this leader's tattooed and these guys listen to cool music and they don't like, you know, contemporary Christian music. And I want to go hang out with them essentially is like what first piqued my interest was, Hey, this is an expression of this faith. I haven't quite yet seen before. And so I, after my first two schools with YWAM, I asked if I could join their staff. Obviously, they said yes. So that was kind of the genesis of this whole thing. And what does it look like to be on staff in that setting? Like, what's a typical day like? And when you're in that context, like, what are those relationships like? I think a lot of our listeners might not understand the intensity of what this space is like when you're in it. Yeah, totally. We, we, you know, it's the first thing, this is so stupid, but the first thing that comes to my mind is like the Von Trapps, like, you know, like a, a little traveling family band, but we were, we were nomadic. There was about 10 of us. We were in charge. We were, we were the staff of a school that was always rotating new kids in and out every fall and traveling to kind of go assist whatever YWAM Tex, Tyler, Texas connected base needed help. And I was never given any specific role, which is a, a whole other thing later. But we had the staff members who were one-on-one, so they were in charge of discipling, which I was far removed from. <laughs> and then there was honestly the rest of us. And you know how, you know, there was a lot of different roles, so it changed often. So our leader, leader R, was kind of responsible for strategizing and planning out where we would go next. So we would have a meeting, you know, meetings every couple of months to discuss what the next three months would look like. So it was very much like, I mean, it was very much pick up and go. And so we would be, we would be running a school, which would include lecture. They would bring in different speakers to talk about certain, what they would consider introductory courses to Christianity. You know, a, a typical day during the lecture phase would be wake up with worship, you know, led by one of the staff, lecture phase, community meals, you know, th- basically around the clock. Um, and then it would end with like a nightly activity, usually evangelizing um, what in whatever city we were in. And I think weekends were primarily free, but then it would also... And what was evangelizing like? Evangelizing basically, not supposed to be about numbers, right? They would pump you up prior to going out. And as a staff, like you're you're young, you're 18, 19, 20, 21, whatever. But you're also in this role of like, even if you're not a one-on-one, which is kind of like a, a one, like a direct discipleship care role to someone specific who's in school, you are still a model, right? To like the new students. So you were always kind of like on the spot during this time period. And evangelizing, you know, they would, the leaders or you would pump up the students, usually with some sort of like, 
it kind of fluctuated. So sometimes it would be, I'm sure you guys have heard this. This could be the only time in this person's life on the street that you meet that they ever hear the name of Jesus. It's, you know what I mean? Or it could be, you know, it's a scale. So like, you know, it's one to 10, you could get someone to a three just by a conversation. So you essentially were like pressured to go have intentional conversations at best ending in a conversion. And they would just kind of literally drop, like drop you off wherever they deemed fit in the city that you were in, which I don't necessarily think is safe, <laughs> but we did it. And then we would come back and debrief. Well, who did you talk to? Well, how many conversations did you have? Well, what did you talk about? Every person had to do this. Was there ever a conversion? I mean, I'm sure there were, right? Like, but that, yeah. that word in and of itself is, I mean, what do you like? I don't even know what that means personally. Right. Like, what do you can, like, I guess you win an argument. Like you convince someone, oh yeah, I guess I could believe in Jesus today. <laughs> <laughs> sure, totally. So, you know, which is funny because again, like it, I think a, a running theme as well is there are just always these conflicting teachings and ideas. So a part of you is like, well, I just have to trust that God will take this from here. But then the other part of it is, well, you know, it's not really a conversion unless you're there in that person's daily life to disciple them, hint, you know, from their conversions. Yeah. But really, I mean, I don't, I truly, this is so horrible to say, I don't think anybody cared. I think we just wanted to have something to say when we came back to debrief, right? <laughs> so so it's more about the, the, maybe the shame of not having something to say when you get back. Oh, 100% because, you know, well, why didn't, why didn't you have that conversation? Like, why didn't you get over yourself? You know, why were you thinking yeah. about yourself in that moment? It's always interesting to me about a gospel that is preached in the text of the, you know, the gospels that are actually in the text about Jesus emptying himself in places constantly in front of people, especially people that are less than them, that modern white, specifically white evangelicalism really puts the emphasis on you. Like you have to be that. Whereas like every time I read about Jesus, Jesus really just interacted with people, and that was it. It was just an interaction on day-to-day -day lives, and that is where, you know, it's not like he even had, I don't even know if you would say he had conversions as much as he had conversations that influenced people in a way to say, yeah, I want to think about life differently now. Those were always so natural, but like what we talk about, specifically what you talked about, Kat, is so shame-based, but it's also just bizarre because it puts so much pressure on people to force a dialogue without really even knowing what you're trying to accomplish. Like, I, I don't know. It, it blows me away. Well, it's, it's also nearsighted because um, yeah. another larger theme, I think, within YWAM's doctrine, if they even have a doctrine, um, is to transform nations in the image of God, which meant in their words, infiltrating the culture of whatever nation city you were in. And they always preached the different spheres of society that they wanted us to influence. And yet the only way that you really are allowed to engage while you're in YWAM is evangelism. So it's funny to make it all about spheres and different realms of society, but you're only really able to reach someone through this one very specific way. What were the spheres? What were the spheres that... Off the top of my head, it, it would be like family, education. I think ministry was one of them, business, the arts. So, you know, like 
So you think, okay, we'll go get a job as a banker, which they would, you know, like encourage you to do, except not because, you know, don't leave YWAM. (laughs) So just evangelize. I definitely have done some evangelism in the past. And there is like a lot of like well-meaning intention behind it, I think. And also, I don't think there's like that much intentional, like we're going to invade the space. It's like, we're going to love Maybe it is. Kat's like, you know what? Maybe it is. But I don't know. I think it's both. I think that at everyone's heart, you know, at at its best, you want to go out and make someone feel good. At its worst, they yeah. unleash you like a pack of hungry rats, right? And and so it's like you're just like, <laughs> what, well, you know, so you're just you're s- <laughs> and you're so young. Yeah, like, and you feel so pressured and you're just like, okay, I have to have three conversations cuz so then you just like it's very, you know, this is the oldest cliche in the book about this. It's very door-to-door salesman. I'm knocking on your door to sell you something. And that always has a weird vibe around it. What's so fascinating about this is it's like really reminding me of Ashley and Andrew's story and their Jesus conversations. And I'm wondering if uh, their pastor was like used to be YWAM or something, because this sounds exactly like that story. I'm just I'm a little sh- shocked that it sounds unique to YWAM. I just to me this is what, but I guess I didn't do evangelizing in my youth group. So I'm sure this is like I'm sure this is preached or taught else. Yeah, I think it's pretty normal. The you know, that's why I was asking you, Jay. But I think a while back you said like that's not how Jesus did things. I think the unique thing about Jesus in the Bible that we have just like in the in particularly like white. Christian evangelical spaces in America is we've like really lost sight of the fact that when Jesus is entering these conversations, he's not necessarily trying to win them to anything. He's just like seeing them and valuing them and like cherishing them as humans and just having a relational moment where he's like, you matter and looking them in the eye. And we're not really taught how to interact in that way as the predominantly white American church and it's because we have to win. Yeah. Everything's a win or it's a spiritual war. So we talk about a little bit about uh, kind of the day to life, day to day life, but then there is a leadership structure at YWAM specifically within your group. So talk to us about, you know, who was kind of in charge of your group um, and what was that person's role? And then how do they interact with you and, and the group you were with? I was in YWAM total for seven years. I think I was with this specific group, the Urban DTS, for about five years. Leader R was basically the all-encompassing, you know, leader. He And on paper, right, like the structure from YWAM would be, YWAM Tyler would be, you know, the the leaders, which were cousin, our cousins of the founder of YWAM, Lauren Cunningham, underneath this group called the council, which I wish I had more details on that. Cause it sounds very, you know, like we would make jokes, you know, it sounds very like hood and cloak type situation, but it was just a group of, you know, people underneath who made, I think most of the decisions for the base. And then under them would be the school leaders or under them. I think for us specifically was uh, leader B whose brainchild was the urban DTS. Um, and he, I think was around for the first maybe the second school. And by the time that I joined, he had remarried. Um, His wife had passed away and his new family was based in Tennessee and he just wasn't 
around really hardly ever. Um, I, and then it was leader R and his wife who were our primary leaders who we traveled with and did everything with constantly all the time. And so it was very like siloed in that way. So we were nomadic, the only leaders in our life present, like because we weren't connected to the big base around other people, the only leaders in our lives every day was leader R and his wife, Kate. So when you say you're nomadic, can you give like an example of what it looked like to be like, like where did you sleep? YWAM Tyler has several what they call satellite bases, Dallas, uh, New Orleans, Houston, I think there's one more maybe. And we volleyed in between those cities in the fall. We would be there three months and we would go on outreach the following two. And when we were in Dallas, we renovated the top floor of an, a church in Junius Heights. Jay, if you're familiar. Um, and so we, we had to like carpet the whole thing. Uh, we got bunk beds from the base. Um, every now and again, there would be a house. One time it was another church building that we basically like bunked in for three months and meals were always communal. And there was someone in charge of meals specifically. Um, and so we would pay, it was probably like a hundred bucks a month into the pot. And then you would just eat whatever was served. And that was kind of like how you did it kind of in a weird way, like a weird pseudo like monastery or convent type you know, like sense of how you just like functioned, if that makes sense. All right. I feel like now we've kind of laid the framework so people can kind of understand the context. And I don't have no other word right now. vibe. (laughs) Lots of vibes. (laughs) The vibe. (laughs) There's a lot of vibes. Yeah. I guess hippie matches more than convent, but yeah. Can you explain? So this is how you live. What's the culture like? So when I say that, like, what was the, I guess, again, what was the vibe like on the team? What was the feelings that, like, what's the temperature of this space with um, Leader R and your group? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, one of one of the things that makes YWAM so attractive and almost addictive is um, the sense of community, which I think, which, you know, it's kind of like the kindergarten effect you when you're in a room with someone every day you're gonna eventually ask someone to like share a box of crayons so like that just develops such living your life day to day doing all these things with someone develops such a strong sense of connection whether you're kind of looking for that or not the way that I don't think that you can really honestly achieve just as a normal adult in society today so there was a huge overwhelming sense of camaraderie and I would say trauma bonding that you don't necessarily know is happening you're never alone which is really comforting and you're young you're having a lot of fun but and you're growing with you know you're constantly being challenged and growing in your faith with like-minded individuals Um, you're away from your parents that's super fun and also YWAM, because going back to, you know, military language, mobilize is their favorite word. So you're, you are constantly reminded through pep talks, lectures, general rhetoric, you are advancing towards a greater purpose and you are doing this with your best friends around you. So there's this tension and, and pressure and constant, uh, you, because you're around people and you're constantly I would say forced into vulnerability, you 
you're in a boiling pot, but you also are so thankful for it. So you're, you're constantly on display for everyone around you, but you're also grateful for it because you feel like, you know, iron sharpens iron and you're hardworking and you're tired and you're not eating very well and you're sleeping on bunk beds. But isn't it so exciting to be sacrificing so many things to be advancing the gospel? So it's a weird yin yang of like, it's high pressure. Totally. It sounds like I am like that weirdo that watches cult documentaries. I don't think funsies. that's weird. <laughs> like we've all been there. <laughs> when I'm not doing this. And like, it really sounds like training videos for like n- that Nixum. Nixum. Yeah. Cult. Yeah. Or Scientology. Like, and I'm not saying that's what you guys were doing, but it's like that same exact mindset of like getting people excited to be basically living on scraps and really funding other people. <laughs> like you're funding something. Yeah. Well, two things on that. Um, you know, part of that too is, you know, like because we were constantly transient and owned, I mean, I, at the time I, everything I owned, I could fit in my trunk and uh, leader R would never let us mm-hmm. everywhere that we docked leader R would never let us hang things on the walls because, you know, he would tell us to not get too comfortable and not to nest because we were going to just be leaving anyways. So any, literally any sense of security, you just was not, you just, you didn't have anything. And also Nexium makes me, you know, mm-hmm. branding was a huge that's Nexium it. branding Nexium. was a huge part of um, what they did, obviously covertly. And the first thing when you said that I thought of was, again, back to infiltrating. One thing that Leader R would talk to us a lot was imparting, he would say imparting urban DT- DNA, which basically was what our team has is so special and so unique. And we get it from him because he's the mastermind and he's a discipler and it's so special and it's world changing. And we need to impart our DNA onto the people that we meet and we need to change the rest of Tyler. And that's very like branding. Like it's, you know, it's, it's branding, right? It sounds wild now, but in the moment you're like, yeah, like I'm like, I want other people to experience life the way I'm experiencing life with like this community and Jesus. And we were miserable and we felt like we were the most unique group of people in the whole world. I, that was such a palpable feeling at all times. It was really intoxicating. That's crazy. We it's yeah. I mean, it makes sense too, though. Like I'm, I'm saying, I say weird. It is weird. And you get it. I, yeah. I can, yeah, it's weird. Like, it sounds wild yeah. to say now. But also, it makes sense how you got there, especially with the... It's. An, I mean, that's what it really yeah. feels like to me. It's like that, you know, we're going to wander and we're wandering together. Yeah. Adventure we're just mode. constantly in it. And there's a sense, too, yeah, of pride. Yeah. I think right now actually would be good for you to just explain Leader R. What was he like... What was his leadership style? Because you kind of mentioned like he he is who's going to impart this DNA. I think it probably developed over time. So maybe like this first you start, you're under Leader R's direction. What was he like at that time? And then do you feel like there was some red flags maybe that you were seeing right at the top? or Or was it over time you started to see little things? I know that I'm the one doing the podcast, but that question really depends on who you ask. (laughs) Cause everybody, you know, like on our team had different lengths of, you know, like different terms of relationship with him. Um, I will say, I guess from my perspective, 
when I first caught wind of him, which this is so Driscollian, it's like almost, you know, it's almost feels so silly to even say, but he was very countercultural in the way he presented himself. So his background, you know, he, you know, was a, and super into punk rock, you know, BMX. He got saved, uh, married Kate, who had been in YWAM a lot longer than he had came and did his schools and just kind of was on staff. Um, but he was, you know, super into, super into tattoos. So, you know, full body tattoos dressed, you know, like a BMX kid from the eighties. Um, and he was very abrasive, but also very eloquent. And so, you know, he really common for him to just approach you very directly and honestly, and kind of hurt your feelings at the same time. But also you were so in awe of how cool he was. And there was just nobody this is another horrible thing to say, but at the time, I part of me felt like Wyman Tyler was just like a graveyard for nerds. Like all, you know, the, the only people who are nerdy enough to want to abandon college, you know, and abandon partying and, and whatever to go join missions mm-hmm. were there. But, but he was the, like, he was the opposite and you were so drawn to something so, you know, quote unquote, raw and aggressive. Very, so that was kind of the introduction. Um, and I had actually... Yeah, I had been warned about him before joining staff, which I laughed off because I thought, well, I'm honest, you know, like I can I can handle it. And it was really it felt like a challenge. Like I want to go be I want to again, I want to go hang out with these people. They seem very different. Um, But I had been warned about him from people who had had experiences with him. And I and they oddly enough, they did not tell me what they were. Everybody, again, I think with with him had red flags. I want to say immediately which is really wild. Um, I think it's wild to immediately mm-hmm. experience something that's incredibly off-putting. So, I mean, we can talk about this later. One of my friends, uh, Dalton, in his DTS the year prior to me arriving, um, a couple months, or I think a couple weeks into his DTS, said something to upset Leader R, who was his school leader, and he punched him in the throat in a, in a van with all the other students there. So like how, I mean, what other, <laughs> that's a pretty red, you know, pretty big red flag. No, no, it's, <laughs> oh my gosh. It's yeah. N- our faces. You're the first person to tell us about a throat punch on not- the podcast. Jay and I just, uh, <laughs> I think we're speechless. It's batshit guys. Like it's crazy. Yeah. And so for me, um, for me specifically, they did not let us go. They didn't let us, when I first joined staff, YWAM Tyler felt like our group needed more training. And I found out later that they had kind of had reservations about Leader R, but they didn't communicate this to anybody. So they decided as a way to kind of like give us some more training and cover up and kind of like help him develop into a better leader. They decided to make us do a YWAM Tyler run School of the Bible, which was a year long Bible program. Um, and so luckily for me, the first year I was on staff, he was not my primary leader and I was on the base surrounded by a lot of other people. So, and I only had to see him once or twice a week. So I, you know, everything was fine for me because we weren't in that siloed environment, but, um, this turns into a running theme, but there was somebody I met who was on urban staff with me who I wanted to date, which dating was, if not outright denied, tightly controlled with leader r and this is a leader r specific thing not a yeah I mean, yeah i mean thing, right yes but you know this is kind of where it gets hairy with christian culture in general right like countless stories of various different you know christian leaders kind of 
being more controlling than they should be. But I would say specifically for us, it was so bad that other people would tell leader R, Hey, why, like, how come nobody on your team is dating? Like they're in their early twenties, you know, like they're adults. Right. Um, and he would say, well, we're not really focused on that. And you know, they're kind of like brother and sister. So that would be weird, which was weird. Cause we're not anyways, leader R would influence this boy to not like me and to not date me. And he would tell this boy all the things that leader R found fault in me. But instead of, instead of telling me directly where leader R felt like I wasn't mature enough to date or whatever, he would use the boy I liked to express these things to me, which is kind of like choosing the most sensitive, the most, the sharpest dagger in your toolkit to send a message to someone. Right. So he would use this boy to communicate all the reasons why I was not fit for this relationship. And I remember one of the earliest ones was this boy came to me and he said, well, I was talking to leader R and he says that we shouldn't date because you don't trust leader R and Kate. And I had known them for one month. And I remember in that moment thinking, it's really weird that this guy would demand trust from me so early and so upfront because in my, to my understanding, which hasn't changed, trust is something you build and something that you earn with relationship. But it was weird that he demanded my trust so early, demanded, and it was weird that he could not tell me himself. He was using this boy to express these things. So that's a really minor one, perhaps. But that was when I was like, this just seems a little entitled to me, <laughs> you know, like a little, a little weird. Did you talk to Leader R about that? No, I think I tried. Yeah. I was very bold this first year because I didn't know. And also I, you know, so I think maybe perhaps there were a couple of times, but we were always encouraged to process these things with our one-on-one -on -one or our, our pastoral care leader. And mine was his wife, Kate, which basically was as good as talking to leader R because everything I would say to her would be communicated to him. Did they have any, I guess, like qualifications to take these leadership positions? Wonderful question. No. And I would argue that nobody in YWAM does. So, no. So you have kind of a pseudo, not even a pseudo, but you have a guy who's, for what you described, he's, you know, edgy, uh, pat tattoos. Everybody throws out punk rock. I love punk rock, so I'm not going to throw out punk rock. <laughs> She described yeah. Mark Yeah, Driscoll. finding yeah. some bands. I mean, do you think maybe we could? Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> get up, kids. Bouncing okay. souls. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I I can't remember. <laughs> Did you ever okay. listen? I don't know if Split Lip Rayfield was is a punk rock band, but um. I mean, I'm familiar with the first two. So, all right. I mean, I <laughs> I think punk rock's awesome, and I I don't. I think punk rock is anti all of this, but I get it. All right. So he's that kind of guy. He's real, and then he's installed in this leadership position with zero experience, uh, or I guess, no, no, he doesn't have the correct experience. And, you know, you mentioned in your letter uh, that we'll talk about later, because I think this is interesting, that the environment became oppressive and high controlling, yeah. which you just really described to me why it was like, I mean, that's a perfect example of both of those things. But I mean, can you expand on that? Because that is highly concerning in so many ways. So Kat has permission to share these stories. So as she is expanding on the questions that Jay and I ask through this episode, you're going to hear parts of 
stories that maybe didn't directly involve her, but that she has expressed permission to share because there's like a united desire to shine light on this. Yeah, it's not a it's truly not a complete story if I don't include other other elements. I was around for a lot of it, though. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, first thing to note before I get into get into that specific um he was very young. He was, I think, maybe around 27 when he first was given this position. So he was maybe, I think he had turned 30 when I had joined staff. Um, but when you have someone who, there wasn't anybody in the day-to-day to be a sounding board or to check him. Certainly, you know, Kate, amazing. But there's only so much I think a wife can do in these certain environments. And so and often, you know, and, and so I'm just saying, there was nobody to check him. Certainly we did not hold that power. Um, and so he just made every freaking decision for us. And so I felt like one thing that I said in the letter was I felt like his hand was in every pot in our lives. And it's very true. Simple things that I think are like, perhaps not basic human rights, but I would, you know, uh, we often were not given the freedom to choose which car we rode in whenever we would travel places, um, he would have very specific and intentional, intentional was one of his favorite words. He would have very intentional reasons as to why you needed a ride in Dalton's car. Um, One time actually he ripped me a new one in front of everybody because he noticed, Leader R noticed that whenever I was given the choice, I never rode in Leader R's car. Um, And that was kind of because there were very few moments that I was allowed to control my environment. Um, I think people all probably felt this for me specifically, my temperament, that's very important to me. And the same goes with whenever we would have certain rooms, we were never given the choice of who we could room with. So he would uh, dictate how we would use our free time. And when I say dictate, there were times he would outright tell us, you can't go do that fun thing on Saturday. Or he would intentionally sabotage. He'd go, oh, well, you can't go to that concert because we need to have an impromptu meeting. That happened a lot of the time. Or if we spent our free time, if we had any kind of free time in the day, he would guilt trip you. Well, why weren't you evangelizing to your neighbor? So there also, we, you know, dating was something that basically was, you'd have to jump through 500 rings, you know, hoops to be able to get that um, approved by him. Yeah, where we went, what we ate often as well. He was really notorious for throwing fits over what kind of food we would make for dinner. So one time he, when we were in New Orleans, uh, we were having a community meal and we decided to get pizza. So we ordered Domino's because Domino's is the cheap pizza of choice when you're 21 and broke. (laughs) And he came in the room and threw a fit and told us that because he, there was a place in town in New Orleans that had, uh, it was hipster pizza, right? And uh, it was $7 a slice, which is like nobody who can afford that, you know, when you're a broke missionary. And so he chewed us out and told us that we were, uh, we had a poverty mindset. And the only African-American on the team, only person of color, he came over to her picked up her crust and said, you don't even eat your crust and you wonder why you're broke. Essentially implying like God is not financially providing for you because you don't eat your crust. (laughs) So it's just like, it sounds so insignificant to say this, but I think that's kind of, there were bigger things that he controlled, but like it was down to the minutia of your day. He had some sort of direct 
influence on and it was very heavy handed. Wow. When you say he threw a fit, can you walk me through a little bit about what that looks like when Leader R throws a fit with you guys? Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing I feel like when you go over these stories with other people is they want to know if, well, did this person yell? But he didn't ever, he he raised his voice for sure, but his whole demeanor would completely change. If he was really angry, his lip would quiver. Um, but he had a way of silencing the room and just would rapid fire aggressively. Um, either it was to you specifically or it was to the group launch into a rant about why you shouldn't be doing the thing you were doing and here's why and anger was always the tone always the tone so it was and which is ironic because later he would make fun of me I really had a hard time with authority because I felt like I was constantly getting in trouble which he would demean that word to me and laugh at me like oh are you five years old like why do you keep feeling like you're getting in trouble but that's why like because he would get us because we would get in trouble right like but he couldn't let you feel that way even though he talked to you like a kindergartner what's a weird dynamic here is you guys are all in your 20s he's you know maybe eight to ten years eight to nine years older than you so it's almost like a like a brother or even like in some situations, I mean, some people when they're married have that big of an age gap too. So like his authority position is totally self-made. Like he's made himself this like authority and, and he's created these environments where you, all of you are depending on his approval and looking for his direction, but also fearing him, which is a total mind F by the way. Like, I don't know how you like make room in your mind for all of that. What I'm interested in is the dynamic of the group as far as, are we talking about this is a group of men and women or is it predominantly female? Why women in general is predominantly, predominantly female, but we were pretty even. Um, it was men and women. And this is something I want to add in really quickly as far as when going back to control, he was also very specific to about like, what the men could do versus the what the women could do. Can you give an example of that? Drinking. So, which, you know, again, stories that I found out a lot later because this is how tightly controlled um, the environment was. There were so many instances of leader R getting drunk um, various times throughout his tenure as a leader. But when we lived in New Orleans, the girls were not allowed to go. So it's New Orleans, right? And at this time, you're like... 23, 24, because we were so progressive, you know, we did, you know, we like, you know, had tattoos, cussed, like, (laughs) um, and, you know, didn't think that drinking was from Satan. And so you wanted to go out and like go to a concert and like have a beer. Right. And actually, um, God, I'm so sorry. Like literally this is, it's just, my memories are so, I have so many of them. So if I run off in a tangent, please cut me off. But like, you're doing great. Leader R would tell us, well, you guys are supposed to be missional living in your community in New Orleans. So what what does it look like when you go to the bar around the corner and have a drink? How, how are you like, what does that do to your witness? But he would only say that to the girls. I remember having a very specific dinner with Kate and Leader R and my best friend, Rachel, where Kate was pleading with Leader R, these are grown ass women like these are adults you can't gatekeep you can't gatekeep this but he was so eloquent and so 
intentional and also so aggressive. And at the end of the day, his word went. And But I remember I have specific memories of sitting on the porch in New Orleans where I lived and listening to the boys rally for a night out and feel and just wishing I was a man because I felt so uh, I felt like I was in a cage. Wild, but also it doesn't really fit with like YWAM, right? Like I don't, I didn't, I don't think YWAM's complementarian or no YWAM is non-denominational, and the only very specific rhetoric that you're taught is m- mobilizing and transforming the nations. So when it comes to you know topics, there just are a lot of conflicting. I feel like it would vary base to base. So it's like luck of the draw, where you're at, who your leader is, whether or not you're going to have. And with Leader R, it changed every day. It changed every day. So there were times where he would tell me, well, you know, uh, it's men's fault for sexualizing women's bodies. And then he, you know, and then uh, uh, in... Sweden, you can, you know, like they have bathhouses where the men and women like do saunas together naked and they don't sexualize it. It's an American problem. So women can wear bikinis. It's, it's totally okay to be a Christian woman and to wear bikinis. And then I would show up in leggings the next day and he'd pull me aside and he'd go, uh, you know, uh, five of the boys, he was always very specific. Uh, five of the boys have told me that they've had problems with your leggings. And I, and I would, and and basically tell me to change and I'd go, well, Ro- you know, leader R, you told me, you told me That's yesterday horrifying. that women can wear bikinis. Like, and, and like, what's what, like, why can't I wear leggings? And he would tell me, well, you know, you're being really argumentative and would kind of shut that shit down. So, uh, so it changed. Yeah. Like it just was depending on his whim. When you just said that, it reminded me how many people are on your team? I would say it, it fluctuated between probably like, Maybe 10, 15. Okay. So when he says five of the boys, which he really means men, right? Well, what he really means, he means men, but he would say boys. But what he really means is probably himself because I went, I went, I was very close with most of the the boys and I went to one of them and I said, hey, you know, have any of the guys been talking about my leggings? Like very contrite because you're young and you feel called out and, and you know, the guy went, and embarrassed. And embarrassed. And the guy That's went, embarrassing. No. <laughs> like, so, but he would do that. He, you know, like um, he, he would use hyper specific language to be able to catch you on whatever he felt like you needed to be reprimanded about. <sighs> gross, gross, gross. I'm so sorry. That's some crazy, shameful purity culture nonsense. That's very confusing with the other side of it that you're hearing. Um, and I think as you continue to share a little bit more of how this develops, people will see how gross and specific that is that he was talking to you about that. In your letter, again, we keep referencing a letter. Um, Should we mention what this is? (laughs) Yeah. So you end up writing a letter after your experience to some of the leadership. And so when we're talking about um, in reference to your letter, that's what we're referring to. And then we're going to give Kat an opportunity to explain what that letter was and what the response she received. So you talk about um, a little bit about how I thought this was a heartbreaking quote, and I want to make sure that I that I set it up for you. You talk about that, how at your time there, you felt like, especially with Leader R, that you were conditioned to distrust your own credibility. Like, expand on that for us. Like, what was that like? What, What do you mean by that? 
Yeah. I, I, you know, I really want to focus in on that word credibility. You know, I feel like it could, I could have easily phrased it as conditioned to distrust your own reality, which is very much a part of it. But I remember, um, because he's your leader and he's so smart and so cool and, you know, and he, he, is so challenging. He calls you out in so many things and you just feel, you know, it hurts, but I'm growing and whatever you just, and he's the only person around. And so he's calling all the shots. So you just, you, if that is your mode of living for so long, eventually con- conformity just ha you, you know, you break. Right. I remember having a really specific moment early on where I had a moment of wild, like, clarity. I think I was 21, and we were in Houston, and it had been probably one of the worst years of my life. I felt very isolated and very misrepresented, very alone. And I remember thinking to myself, I am living in in Leader R's reality. Like, it just hit me. I'm living in his reality. And it was a really sad moment of resignation to that, And from then on, you just kind of adapt to it. And then you go, well, you know, he's older than me. He's so much more wise. He would, he would brag to us and tell us that he, (laughs) this sounds so stupid saying, but he would tell us, well, you know, when you get to be really, you know, when you get to be really mature, like me, you really only have to have a quiet time once a month. So you're like, this guy is just, man, like Nirvana, like Christian Nirvana. He only has to have a quiet time once a month. (laughs) He's that spiritual, right? Or he, he once told a school that he hadn't sinned in a year. So you just think this is the apex. This is, this is the pinnacle. This is the top. It's him. So why would you, mm-hmm. why would I through, you know, me of so many faults, like, and you were constantly reminded of your faults. What do I have? Like, what, what kind of skin do I have in the game? Like, what, what is my, pers- my, what is my perspective compared to his? And so even well after I left, you just think, and also as a Christian, you know, one of the things that they really weaponized against us is the quote, which I think is maybe in the Bible, love hopes best. So even if you had very blatant wrongdoing in front of you, you can't call it out in him because love hopes best. And you're not hoping best of your brother. So that, so it, it gets to where you just, your voice doesn't matter to anybody and, and not, and not even to you anymore. So, and what you're seeing, you think that you're seeing through a, a myopic lens, which, which you have been conditioned to develop. It's like, you're growing more and more blind as you're there. Yeah. And you just think, well, I, I'm not, maybe I'm just not being fair and kind and not thinking on good things. Right. Like it's kind of where the Christian element seeps in and you're like, this is just really negative and stirring up disunity and stirring up strife. And maybe this is gossip and so on. I, I, I thought like when I read through everything that you said, Kat, one of the things that really struck me is that like he did this great job of isolating you, but also building fear against your own instincts, but also fear that no one else would ever understand what you were going through. He tied that with such, from what I can tell, such religious authority that I, I don't know if I can phrase it in a way of how harming that is to a person. 
So especially as you try to unpack all of those things, right? Because you can't trust your own body, can't trust your own mind, and maybe your own body and your own mind is wrong because this guy's telling you stuff. He's crossing all these boundaries. He's saying things to you. They're horrible. And now you start to question God. You start to question yourself. Then you're afraid if you go forward or if you talk to anybody else, no one's going to understand you. So you're just stuck in this cycle. And like all I have to say is like I'm just amazed and so proud to be talking to you today because of your bravery to just take the courage to dive into that shit and say, I'm going to get myself out of this and to do that work because like that is a hell of a lot of work and like no one in any spiritual position should ever do that to people tying the spiritual aspect on it is just so heartbreaking for me to hear and i can only imagine what it's done to you and to others but that environment is just horrible it's horrible i don't even know i don't even know if that made sense yeah i mean well first off thank you but also it's like a part of me as much as i would you know like you know we all all of us were dropped into a situation nobody wanted to be in and it's like you're dropped in the middle of a maze and you you freaking have to find your like you it's you have to find your way out you know um so thank you but it's it's like it's been years and we're still each and every one of us it's just really sad and a testament to the deep level of torment that all of us are still years mm-hmm. out we feel like just bare, you know, like at the surface of all of the layers we have to pull back. But um, it's abuse. You guys were under years and years of abuse, like extreme abuse. Um, and something that is unique to your story in comparison to the other stories that we have helped share on the podcast is you guys also like every part of your life was tied to this. So you coming and speaking up or you even just like, I want to leave or even having a fleeting thought of like, I want to be done meant giving up everything. So, and I know a lot of times in a story, someone will say like, I felt like I gave up everything. And there is validity to that, right? Like if you're in a church, your church community feels like your family. Yes. Like all of that stuff is valid. And we're not trying to compare like, is yours worse or yours worse? But there is a unique intensity to your story because it was literally, you were guys were so siloed off and so isolated that it was literally, it was like giving up your family to leave that space. Yeah. And he would actively encourage us not spending too much time at home and often would not let us go home. He would come up with something, some important, mm-hmm. stupid thing that we had to do, you know? Um, and it was just, was just funny. Cause like he never gave me any right. kind of responsibility. So it's like, why do you have to have me here for this? You know, but, um, he would encourage right. us to not go home or to keep our time short. Um, because usually one of us would come back after having spent time in the the free world with our loving parents. And we'd be like, man, like, why, what am I doing? And we'd go back and we'd try to leave. Uh, And he would go, well, you know, every time that you go home, you always come back and you want to leave. So maybe, maybe, you know, like maybe home is not a healthy environment for you. Right. And also too, Mm -hmm. like, 
you know, we couldn't, we couldn't talk to anybody located at the base because he would always tell us he would, I remember him saying several times, everything comes back to me and it's true. So anytime I think to a listener who would go, well, why didn't you reach out to anybody? We freaking did. And it would get back to leader R Uh and he would confront us often, you know, in a very abrasive tone. And so you just were like, okay, like there's nobody, like there's nobody, um, even, even trusted (sighs) people. It's somehow finding its way back to him. And you guys didn't have a space even to get away. Like in a, when we're talking, when we're sharing a story from someone who was on staff at a church with an abusive boss, they get to at least go home. This man was in your guys's home. Like there was no space. So this is another dynamic too, just concerning his marriage his marriage relationship, but, uh, he was never home with his, he had, eventually he had three children throughout this course. He was rarely home. He loved being around us. So he, he, and for specifically in new Orleans, because usually we all were all together, um, with whatever church we were staying at for whatever school we were running in, whatever city we were in. But whenever we based, whenever we were in new Orleans for three years, we had a girl's house and it was very common daily for him at any hour of the day to just show up at your house. So he would come to the girl's house often and would be there until 11, 12. Um, and which is just really like invasive, you know, um, I remember begging gross. He he would also have (laughs) meetings. He would have the boys over to have meetings in the girl's house at like, you know, eight in the morning. And I remember begging one time, some of the other girls, I was like, can y'all please do your meeting somewhere else? Like there are girls in this house. We need to be able to walk to the bathroom to shower in our pajamas. (laughs) So it was this constant invasive, literally all the time in your space. Uh, And if, and so it's so funny because like, if we had the terminology we have now surrounding this topic, which I think has bloomed in the, you know, the pre, like, just a few short years, just the word boundaries. Like, why mm-hmm. didn't I have that simple word at that time? Because just every boundary was crossed. And so even me wanting some freaking space in my, my house where I laid my head, uh, you were a community hater, you know, like I was an introvert, which was a very, very, uh, horrible, you know, thing to be. Uh, and I hated community if I fought against mm-hmm. these invasions of personal boundary. So, Amen. I'm an introvert as well. Yeah. <laughs> Jay. Feel you. you would have not done well been, in this scenario, Jay. In the No car. one would. No one would. Was anyone flourishing? I, I mean. On your team? No, but I think there were the more outwardly one. You know, I surely was not um, because of those yeah. reasons. Uh, but there was there were several who were naturally very gifted with the the skills that YWAM calls upon you to exude. And so I think a few mm-hmm. select uh, one person I think of Olivia, you know, just very giving, loving, energetic, servant hearted. And there's a lot of opportunities within YWAM for you to, to do these things. But when it comes to inner peace, Uh, and the tension and the stress that you feel on the daily when it comes to just your mental health, like, fuck no, sorry. (laughs) Like, no, you were not, you were not flourishing. Um, And I think everybody daily walked around feeling that way. But the worst part about it, at least for the girls, there was nothing to relieve that tension because you couldn't even discuss what you were feeling internally. I know I never could. Um, And so it was very much a burden, a weight that you carried around the clock alone. 
and that really wears on on Ugh. someone so young you know in your early formative years and you also are like you said like it's your it's your your best friends your your chosen family it's your vocation it's your spirituality you ditch one you ditch them all like if you ditch leader r you also ditch these other five things that are very important to you and all you have known since you were 18 years old and that's a really like that just takes a lot of courage you know and also whenever we did try to leave those of us who became brave enough to go i want out he would call a meeting and have everybody in the room and essentially you'd be put in the hot seat and you would have to give an account with biblical and spiritual backup evidence to explain to heavy questioning why you were leaving. Essentially, it was a trial. And so even if you wanted to leave, you knew that you had to come with ammo to be able to leave cleanly. And few of us did. Few of us were able to do that. Goodness. That sounds horrible. <sighs> yeah, well, that's why I included it in um, the document I sent you guys. But that's why the last year I was dreaming of suicide. Uh, because I thought that I didn't actively have ideation. But I think subconsciously, I felt so trapped that I knew that if I truly ever wanted to leave, it would be it would be death, which is I it's so dark for a 24 year old to be to have that perspective. It's God, it's so dark, like, man. And I remember, you know, feeling so forced to stay and that I, you know, I didn't have vision for, I was, you know, had gotten to a point where I had chosen New Orleans to be my city of, you know, chosen missionary work, but I had zero vision, none. I had, I actually dreamed of mm -hmm. leaving and moving to Nashville to pursue arts. I, you know, but I felt like I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't know how I was going to be able to convince leader art to let me go. And so I remember having days where I just thought about my future there and it felt so bleak and to be so young and to have no hope and no joy in the future before you is just a really dismal way to function day in and day out. Gosh, I'm so sorry. It's so heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking seeing you um, and just even imagining this happening to you. I'm devastated for you. But it's also it's heartbreaking that there was 15 of you all in this space with like such high control. I mean, I imagine it's probably not a unique experience to you and your team to be feeling that way. Because none of you were empowered to dream or hope or have any any life outside of what you were living. Yeah, we would. I think several of us would try to get jobs, even just like on part time, and we were discouraged from doing so. Like, how do you leave? How you you don't even have the financial means to leave? No, I mean, when I eventually left, which we can get to later, uh, if we get to where we can talk more linear about just how things unfolded. But I basically just yeah. called my dad and was like, "Can you be? You know, like, how soon can you be here?" And I had not like I had nothing. I had no money. <laughs> I'm so grateful that I had a dad who had a guest bedroom. <laughs> you know, so none of us had college yeah. degrees. Like, we're well past graduation age, and we're and we have it the easiest, right? Like, there are some, you know, Kate, leader, R's wife, you know, everything unraveled when she was like in her, I think early forties with three children. So yeah. Gosh. This was part one of two episodes covering Kat and her team's story. Part two is available now. 
Thank you for daring to listen. Thank you.